14. Seemed to me to be tiny pieces of buckskin which the man had secreted in his mouth and which swelled up when saturated with saliva. To the shaman they represent maggots, that island the embodiment of the disease, and all the people firmly believe that they are maggots. The corn leaf and its contents are buried, a cross is made on the ground over the spot and a ceremonial circuit run around it. When resting between operations, the shaman places his sucking tube into a bowl of water in which some herbs are soaking. The mode of curing, however, varies. A common way in use near Guachalchik is to make the patient stand on all fours and bathe him well with water, then to place him on a blanket and carry him over a fire toward the cross and the four corners of the world. When put down on the ground again he lies or kneels on the blanket, and the shaman places his tube against the afflicted part and begins to suck forcibly, while the rest of the people stand around with sticks, ready to kill the disease so as to prevent it from returning and doing harm to others. Presently the shaman produces from his mouth a small stone, which he asserts was the cause of the disease, while the people are furiously beating the air, he proceeds at once to bury it in the earth, or in the bottom of the river, into which he dives, he may suck out as many as eight stones, but generally contents himself with four, and for treating a man in this way he receives four omelets of maize, on one occasion, when I had taken a little cold, I asked a shaman friend whether he could cure me. Certainly I can, was the confident reply. He took from a little basket, in which he kept his hickory or sacred cacti and probably similar valuables, three black stones and said that he would sell one of these to me, if I put it into warm water it would cure me. This was not quite to my liking, as I wanted him to perform the magical feat of sucking maggots out of the skin. He complied with my request, and told me to go ahead to my camp, whither he would follow me soon. On his arrival I offered him some food, as my case was not urgent, but he declined, and proceeded to cure me. A saddle blanket was spread out for me to kneel on, and my Mexican and Indian attendants were told to retire, while he made his examination, having ascertained that I had a headache. He took my head between his dirty hands, pressed it, applied his lips to my right ear, and commenced to suck very energetically. This was rather trying to my nerves though not inendurably so. Presently he let go his hold, and spit out quite a lot of blood into a cup an Indian boy was holding out to him. He repeated the operation on my left ear with the same result. More pain? He asked. Yes, I said, in my right hand. He immediately grabbed that member in his mouth, biting almost through the skin over the pulse, and after having sucked for a little while, deposited contents, of a similar nature, into the cup from his mouth. It was afterward found that the blood was mixed with a considerable number of grass seeds, which had been the cause of my illness. I had not known that I was so seedy. The curing is often performed at dances, during the night, as the family who give the feast expect to receive, in return for all their trouble and expense, the benefit of the shaman's magic powers, whether any of them are real or not. Once a man, his wife, and his child had been cured with Tesvino but nevertheless they still anxiously looked to the shaman for more treatment, apparently feeling that they needed more strength against coining evil. The woman said, Yesterday I fell into the water and got wet and felt ill, and in the night I dreamed that I was dead and that you cured me. To this the doctor replied, Yes, that is why I came to cure you. Then, yielding to their beseeching glances, he dogged them again, this time holding their hands and with a little cross in his left hand. Then he said, now you need not be afraid, I have cured you well. Do not walk about any more like fools and do not get wet again. And they were content, 
There is a shaman near Bakwishikbakabanduried who has a great reputation for curing cattle, or rather for keeping them in health. Every year he makes a tour of the different ranches, and the Indians bring their animals to him to be treated. A large hole is dug in the ground and a fire kindled in it. Then some green branches of the mountain cedar and some copal are thrown in and burned, and the animals driven one by one through the smoke. Since the veterinary gets one animal for each ceremony, he becomes quite rich. The shamans also undertake to cure the sun and the moon, because these, too, are often ill and have to be righted. Not a feast is held in which some spoonfuls from the jars containing the remedies are not thrown up for the benefit of the sun and the moon. Occasionally, however, special ceremonies have to be performed to cure the celestial bodies, particularly the moon, because from her all the stars receive their light. At the period of the dark moon she is considered to be sick and tied up by the devil, and the world is sad. Then the shamans assemble to consult about her ailment and the means of curing her. An ox may be killed and tesvino made. In killing the animal, care is taken not to injure the heart, which is treated with great ceremony. The people always avoid touching it, and at sacrifices they hang it with the lungs to a stick raised near the cross. The shamans stand near, with small earthenware dishes containing copal incense, while the oldest cuts with his knife four crosses on four diametrically opposite points of the heart, and from the upper part all but slices off a piece, which is left hanging down beside the main part. All the blood the heart contained is sacrificed to the four cardinal points with much singing. Then the shaman asks for an earthen bowl which has never been used before, and in this he places the heart and burns it without adding fat or anything else. The ashes he rubs between his fingers until reduced to a fine dust, which he mixes with water and some medicinal herbs. The shamans stand in the middle, and the people around them, and all are unanimous in their prayer that they may see the moon. Each shaman takes three spoonfuls of medicine, the rest of which is thrown on the cross, and the shamans watch all night. The Christian Tarahumers even feel called upon to cure the church windows buried in and around it have been noisily dancing and damaging the building to make the people give them tesvino. The principal shaman heads the procession, carrying a jar of the liquor. His assistant holds in one hand a bowl containing water mixed with the crushed leaves of the maguey, and in the other some fresh maguey leaves. The tesvino, as well as the green water, is liberally thrown upon the walls and the floor of the church to allay the perturbed spirits. How to cure smallpox is beyond the come of the shamans, but they tried to keep off the dread enemy by making fences of thorny branches of different trees across the paths leading to the houses, and snake skins, the tail of the gray fox, and other powerful protectors or charms, are hung around the doors of their dwellings to frighten the disease away. The same purpose is accomplished through the pungent smell produced by burning in the house the horns of cows, sheep, and goats. The shamans also profess to produce springs by sowing water. They make a hole one yard deep in the rocky ground. Water is brought in a gourd and poured into it, together with half an omelet of salt. The hole is then covered up with earth, and after three years a spring forms. High as the shamans stand in the estimation of the people, they are by no means exempt from the instability of mundane conditions, and the higher a man rises the less secure is his position. The power to see everything, to guard against evil and to cure illness issues from the light of his heart, which was given him by Tardios. It enables him to see Tardios himself, to talk to him, to travel through space at will, for the shamans are as bright as the sun, but all this supposed great power to do good may at any moment be turned to evil purposes. There are indeed some shamans whose kindly, sweet-tempered manners and gentle ways enable them to retain their good reputation to the end, 
but few go through life who can keep themselves always above suspicion, especially when they grow older, and innocent persons have on this account been cruelly persecuted. Such a fate is all the more liable to befall them on account of the recognized ability of a shaman to both cure and produce disease. No doubt the great quantity of stimulants taken by shamans in the course of their career causes them to go periodically through a state of excitement, which, combined with the enthusiasm which they work themselves up to, gradually gives to these men, who frequently are richly endowed with animal magnetism, a supernatural appearance. Advancing years have their share in making such a man look hot and uncanny, not only on account of his gray hair, wrinkled face, and shaggy eyebrows, but still more by his reserved bearing and distinctive personality. Women shamans, too, may turn bad and become witches, much as in cases of heresy among Christian ministers. The other shamans hold a consultation regarding a suspected colleague, and may decide that the light of his heart has failed him and that he is no longer one of them. From that time on, good people avoid him, they no longer give him food, and do not tolerate him about their homes, they are afraid of him, and the better a shaman he was before, the more terrible a sorcerer he is now supposed to have become. Soon every accident that happens in the locality is laid at the accused man's door. There are, on the other hand, many evil-minded persons who pretend to possess supernatural powers to do harm, and accept payment for services of that kind, in short, who make it a business to be sorcerers. The power of the sorcerer to do evil is as great as the ability of the good shaman to cure it. The sorcerer may rasp on his notched stick, and sing death and destruction to a person or to attain his ends he may use hickory, smooth stones, the corpse or the foreleg of some highly venerated animal and powerful rainmaker, as the toad, which is never killed except by bad persons. A terrible thing in the hands of a sorcerer is a hummingbird stripped of its feathers, dried, and wrapped in pulchote wool. To the tar who wears the brilliant little bird, often mentioned in their songs, is a good and mighty hero god, but the sorcerer perverts his great power to his own evil purposes. The sorcerer is feared by all, pregnant women, especially, go out of his way, as he may hinder them from giving birth to their children. When Tarahumers see a shooting star they think it is a dead sorcerer coming to kill a man who did him harm in life, and they huddle together and scream with terror. When the star has passed, they know that somewhere a man has been killed, and that now the sorcerer is taking out his heart. If a man does any harm to a powerful sorcerer, the latter, after death, enters into a mountain lion or jaguar or bear, and watches by the wayside until the offender comes, when he kills him. Sorcerers are also believed to prevent rain from falling, and therefore the people were once much pleased when they saw me photographing a sorcerer. The camera was considered a powerful rainmaker, and was thought to make the bad man clean. The people may chastise a man suspected of sorcery, to frighten him from doing further mischief. A sick person also is supposed to improve when the sorcerer who made him ill is punished, but if accidents and misfortune continue to happen, the accused man may be killed. Such extreme measures have been resorted to even in recent years, though rarely, the magical powers of a sorcerer are appalling. When a tarahumar walks with a sorcerer in the forest and they meet a bear, the sorcerer may say, don't kill him, it is I, don't do him any harm. Or if an owl screeches at night, the sorcerer may say, don't you hear me, it is I who am calling. The sorcerer dies a terrible death. Many dogs bark and run away and come back, they look like fire, but they are not. They are the evil thoughts of the sorcerer. The river, too, makes a greater noise as it flows, as if somebody were dipping up water and pouring it out again. Uncanny, 
Weird noises come from every part of the house, and all the people in it are much frightened. Hardly anyone goes to talk to the dying man, and no one bids him goodbye. The Christian Tarahumers do not bury him in the churchyard with other people, but alone in a remote cave, and they bury all his things with him his machete his axe, and heavy things that other people never take along, but which the sorcerer, because he is very powerful, can carry with him when he goes to heaven. As we have seen, the medical education of the shamans is extremely limited. Their rational materia medica is confined to the hickory cactus and a few roots and plants. Aside from this they had a cure for snake bites which is really remarkable. The injured man kills the rectal, cuts out its liver and gall, and smears the latter over the wound. He may also eat a piece of the liver, but it must be taken from the animal that inflicted the injury, then he will be well again in three days. If people die of snake bites, it is because the rectal escaped. The gall of a rattlesnake has a sickening smell, even my dogs were repulsed by it when I once killed a four-foot rattler. The method may be considered as in accord with the modern theory that the bile of many animals contains strong antitoxins. However, there is nothing new under the sun. In the Talmud we find recommended as a cure for hydrophobia to eat the liver of the dog that bites one, and in the Apocrypha we read that Tobias was cured of blindness by the gall of a fish. Most surprising of all is the fact that this tribe, which today shows but very slight knowledge of surgery, should in former times have practiced trepanning. That the Tarahumers understood this art is evident from two skulls which I brought back from their country. The skulls were found under the following circumstances. In 1894 I stayed for a fortnight in a remote part of the Sierra Madre, called Pino Gordo on account of its magnificent pine trees. The district is separated on the north from the central part of the Tarahumer country by the deep Barranca de San Carlos, and there are no Mexicans living within its confines. The place in which I found one of the skulls is 20 miles north of the mining town of Guadalupe y Calvo. A lonely trail leads through it on which, only occasionally, perhaps once in the course of a month, a Mexican from the ranches at Guachalchic may journey to Guadalupe y Calvo. One day the principal man of the locality, who had been very friendly to me, showed me a burial cave. I had persuaded him that it was better for me to take away the bones contained in it, in order to keep them in a good house than to let them remain where they were, killing sheep and making people sick. But why do you want them? He asked. Having been satisfied on this point, he one day led the way to a wild, steep arroyo, plonked at its head, and having thus indicated where the cave was, that once left me, I made my way as best I could up the steep little gorge, accompanied by one of my men. On arriving at the top I found the entrance to the cave completely covered with stones plastered together with mud. A heap of stones was also piled outside against the wall. The cave I found very small, and, contrary to the exaggerated reports of the Indians, it contained only three skeletons. According to the custom prevailing throughout part of the country of the Tarahumers, these remains had not been buried. The skeletons were simply lying on their backs, from east to west, as if looking toward the setting sun. A few crudely made clay vessels of the ordinary Tarahumer type were found alongside of them. On gathering the three skulls I was at once struck by a circular hole in the right parietal bone of one of them, as they undoubtedly belonged to the Tarahumers. The question at once occurred to me, can it be possible that this barbaric tribe, not particularly advanced in the arts, was capable of trepanning? The remoteness of the place entirely negatives the suggestion that a civilized surgeon could have had anything to do with it. The skull, the lower jaw of which is missing, is that of a Tarahumer woman over fifty years of age. 
the age of the specimen itself is impossible to arrive at, on account of the peculiar circumstances in which it was preserved. However, the cranial walls still contained some animal matter, were still somewhat fatty to the touch, and retained some odor. A spindle provided with a whorl made from a piece of pine bark, which was lying among the bones in the cave, indicates that the body of this female had not been put there in recent times. This variety of whorl, so far as I can ascertain, has not been observed among the Tarahuares of the present day. It island indeed, possible that the skeleton may be pre-Columbian. The skull does not present any deformities or fractures, and the singular aperture is almost exactly round, measuring two centimeters in diameter. A careful examination shows that the cut was made a long time, several years in fact, before death. The regularity of the hole indicates beyond doubt that it is artificial. Another skull taken from a burial cave near Nurarichik is also that of a female, and the opening here, too, is in the parietal bone and in almost the same place as the opening in the first skull described, in the second specimen the cavity is almost filled in with new bone, and as in this instance the edges are very regular and uniform, and distinctly beveled, they show that the operation was performed by scraping, this cannot be said of the first specimen found, the almost circular form of the opening, and its perpendicular walls, prove conclusively that in this instance the surgeon did not employ the simple method of scraping the bone, I have never found among the Tarahumers any implement with which such an operation could have been performed. Possibly it was done with a kind of flint wimble with three teeth, much like the instrument used today in trepanning by the Berbers in Lores, who cure even headaches by this method. It island of course, impossible to say now whether the ancients performed the operation simply to relieve the patient of bone splinters, pus, blood, etc. pressing on the brain, or whether it was done to let out an evil spirit. It is the first time that cases of trepanning have been found in Mexico. Chapter XVIII Relation of Man to Nature Dancing as a Form of Worship Learning from the Animals Tarahumare Sacrifices the Rutuberry Dance Taught by the Turkey the Umeri Learning from the Deer Tarahumare Rain Songs Greeting the Sun Tarahumare Oratory The Flowing Bowl The National Importance of Tesvino Homeward Bound Since the people obtain their subsistence from the products of the soil, they naturally are deeply concerned in the weather upon which their crops depend. Rain, therefore, is the focal point from which all their thoughts radiate. Even the plow is dipped into water before it is put to use, in order that it may draw rain. The people may try to force the moon and the sun to give them rain. In times of drought they reproach especially the moon for making the people live on the leaves of the ash tree and what other poor stuff they can find. On her account they are getting so thin that they can no longer recognize themselves. They scold her, and threaten to denounce her to the sun. The sun himself may be rebuked for lack of rain. At other times they may throw up water to heaven with many ceremonies. That Tadiros may replenish his supply. Generally, however, their relations with the gods, as with men, are based on the business principle of give and take. Sacrifices of food, the meat of domestic animals or of game, and of tesvino, are needed to induce father sun and mother moon to let it rain. The favor of the gods may be won by what for want of a better term may be called dancing, but what in reality is a series of monotonous movements, a kind of rhythmical exercise, kept up sometimes for two nights. By dint of such hard work they think to prevail upon the gods to grant their prayers. The dancing is accompanied by the song of the shaman, in which he communicates his wishes to the unseen world, describing the beautiful effect of the rain, the fog, and the mist on the vegetable world. He invokes the aid of all the animals, 
mentioning each by name and also calls on them, especially the deer and the rabbit, to multiply that the people may have plenty to eat. As a matter of fact, the Tarahumers assert that the dances have been taught them by the animals, like all primitive people, they are close observers of nature, to them the animals are by no means inferior creatures, they understand magic and are possessed of much knowledge, and may assist the Tarahumers in making rain, in spring, the singing of the birds, the cooing of the dove, the croaking of the frog, the chirping of the cricket, all the sounds uttered by the denizens of the green sward, are to the Indian appeals to the deities for rain, for what other reason should they sing or call, for the strange behavior of many animals in the early spring the Tarahumers can find no other explanation but that these creatures, too, are interested in rain, and as the gods grant the prayers of the deer expressed in its antics and dances, and of the turkey in its curious playing, by sending the rain, they easily infer that to please the gods they, too, must dance as the deer and play as the turkey. From this it will be understood that dance with these people is a very serious and ceremonious matter, a kind of worship and incantation rather than amusement. Never do man and woman dance together, as in the waltz and polka of civilized people. The very word for dancing, nolivo, means literally, to a work. The wise old man may reproach laggard, inexperienced younger ones, saying, Why do you not go to a work? Meaning that they should go to the dance and not stand idly about while the feast is going on. If the Tarahumers did not comply with the commands of father son and dance, the latter would come down and burn up the whole world. The Indian never asks his God to forgive whatever sin he may have committed, all he asks for is rain, which to him means something to eat, and to be free of evil. The only wrong toward the gods of which he may consider himself guilty is that he does not dance enough. For this offense he asks pardon. Whatever bad thoughts or actions toward man he may have on his conscience are settled between himself and the person offended. I once asked a prominent heathen shaman why the people were not baptized, and he said, Because Tadios made us as we are. We have always been as you see us. People do not need to be baptized, because there is no devil here. Tadios is not angry with us, why should he be? Only when people do bad things does he get angry. We make much beer and dance much in order that he may remain content, but when people talk much, and go around fighting, then he gets angry and does not give us rain. Dancing not only expresses prayers for rain and life, but also petitions the gods to ward off evil in any shape, as diseases of man, beast, or crops. The people may dance also in case too much rain is falling, or for luck in field work, hunting, dispatching the dead, etc., and in this way they also give thanks for the harvest. By dancing and with Tesvino they express all their wants to the gods, or, as Atarahumir told me, we pray by dancing and the gourd, with the dances is always connected the sacrifice of an animal, the greater portion of the meat is eaten by the people themselves, who, beside, bring forth all kinds of nice food, the best they have, such dancing festivals, as a matter of course, are given either by individuals or by the community. It is thought that Taradiros himself comes down each time to make his demands on the Tarahumers for dancing and sacrificing. He communicates his wishes in a dream to someone, not necessarily a shaman, and in the dry season, when the Indians begin to prepare their fields, most of these notices come and are generally made known to all at a race, where many people always come together. During all these months hardly a day passes without a messenger being sent out from some place in the country to advise one or the other of the principal shamans that God has come down and demanded a feast. Sometimes Tadiros asks for an ox to be killed, 
at other times he wants only a sheep. Frequently he indicates that the animal must be white, on other occasions he is not particular about the color. The threat is added that if the sacrifice is not forthcoming, and the people do not dance soon, all the corn will be burned up, and they will have to die of hunger. Or, if there has been too much rain, the notice may say that, unless they sacrifice and dance at once, all will be drowned, because it is going to rain tremendously. Occasionally it is directed that they dance only a little while, then rest, then dance again, or else they have to keep on dancing for a night and a day, or two nights in succession, when a great many sacrifices have been made and animals begin to be scarce. Taradios may have to content himself with a skit and tortillas. The people may continue to make feasts and to dance, and yet get no other results but fresh messages, ordering still more sacrifices. Then the Indians begin to argue with Tardiros that he must not be so greedy, he has filled himself up with oxen and sheep and tesvino, and they cannot give him any more. When such revolt seems imminent the shaman may throw out an ominous hint that the sacrifices have to be made, for what would the Tarahumers say if Tardiros wanted one of them to be killed? Among the reasons given by the Christian Tarahumers for continued dry weather are the following. The devil has made Tardiros sick and has tied him up or the moon Virgin Mary is sick, or the people have not given Taradios enough food and he is very hungry, or the railroad engines of the Americans are making so much smoke that Taradios is angry, or, finally, someone at a feast has infringed upon the law of decorum, and thereby annulled its value, that present domestic animals are considered more valuable at sacrifices than the beasts of the field and the forest, yet squirrels, chipotle, turkeys, deer, rabbits, and fish are still used to some extent, especially by those who do not possess domestic animals. Twenty men may go out to hunt a deer, or from six to ten men try to bring in four or five squirtles for a communal feast, to which all contribute the corn necessary for the tesvino, say, half an omelet, more or less, according to the means of each householder. Never does any one man give all the corn required for a tribal feast, though he may donate all the meat, in the shape of an ox, a cow, or a sheep. Goats are sacrificed only at burial functions. If the people do not give the best they have for the sacrifice, they will obtain only poor results. The dances are always held in the open air, that father son and mother moon may look upon the efforts of their children to please them. They dance on the level space in front of the dwelling, preferably each danced on its own patio. Some people have as many as three such dancing places, but most of them have to content themselves with one. If the Tarahumir could afford it, he would have ten patios to accommodate more people and dances near his house. To my knowledge there are six different dances, but of these I will describe only two, the Rutuberi and the Umeri, as these are the most important and the two almost exclusively used in the central part of the country. The other four I saw only among the southern Tarahumirs. The Rutuberi was taught to the people by the Turkey. Generally three crosses are put up, and there are three shamans the principal one being in the middle, his assistants need not be shamans, but the master of the house and his son, or some trusted friend, may officiate, when the dancing is about to begin, these men take a position in a line before the crosses, facing east, and shake their rattles continuously for two or three minutes from side to side, holding the instruments high up in the air, as the rattling is meant to attract the attention of the gods, then, with the singing and shaking of the rattles now down and up they move forward in a manner similar to that of a schoolgirl skipping over a rope, passing the crosses to a point as far east as the starting point was to the west, altogether about 18 yards, 
they then turn around and move back to the starting point. In this way they keep on dancing forward and back three times, always in an easterly and westerly direction, swinging their rattles down and up, while passing from one point to the other, and from side to side whenever they reach it. The down and up movement of the rattle is not a simple down and up, but the down stroke is always followed by a short afterclap before the arm rises for the new swing, producing thus a three-part rhythm. They sing the following stanza, repeating it over and over again, root to bushels are I being the root to bushels are I being the root to berry, from one side to the other moving, root to berry, from one side to, etc. Omawik is a rusi, Omawik is a rusi, all, many, arms crossed, all, many, arms crossed, this is the introduction and prelude to the whole dance, after this formal opening the men take their places in line to the right of the shamans, and the women to the left, they stand for a few minutes while the shamans sing and swing their rattles, the men silently holding their arms folded over their breasts, as described in the song, this crossing of the arms I take to mean a salutation to the gods, while the Tarahumers of today never salute each other by shaking hands, neither is there any trace at present of their ever having saluted each other by crossing arms over the breast, which form was probably never used except with the gods, at ceremonies. All the people are closely wrapped in their blankets, which they wear throughout the dance, in its general traits. The dance is performed in the same way as the opening ceremony. The shamans, or sometimes only the leader, jumps along as described, but the men just walk to and fro, and have to take long steps in order to keep abreast with the leaders. The women follow the men after the latter have gone several yards ahead, skipping in the same way as the shamans, though less pronounced. They stamp the hard ground with the right foot and run without regard to time, so that the pattering of their naked feet reminds one of a drove of mules stampeding, they overtake the men, so as to turn around simultaneously with them and wait again for a few seconds for the men to get ahead of them, thus the dance.